Hey guys, it's Chris. Thank you so much for joining me today on The Fort. Had a cancellation today. It's snowing uh, like crazy in Texas, which means that we don't know what to do with ourselves. We start getting out of whack when it starts getting cold, much less six, seven inches of snow. So after a great morning with my kids out in the front yard, I am here to record. I picked a topic that I tweeted about the other day about if I were doing my first real estate deal with zero real estate experience and no money, what would I do? Cheating a little bit because this is a lot of what I did when I did my first deal, but I'm gonna go through. I might leave some things out, might be long-winded on other things, but here is what I would do if I had no experience and very little money and wanted to buy my first real estate deal. So here we go. First, I would pick, if you listen to my episode on getting your first job in real estate, it, it follows something similar, but I would pick an asset class. And I think the easiest one to pick if you're doing your first deal is something residential. So let's think a duplex, maybe single family, but really a duplex, triplex, quadplex, something small. And I would pick it in an area that you're really familiar with. So that could be where you already live, maybe where you came from, but something that you're really kind of intimately understand the market. And when I say understand the market, I don't just mean knowing the streets. If, if you know a city, you know really well that if, if somebody's looking on like a Google Earth or a Google map, or even if they are coming to, to see the city for the first time, there's just things that you know about a city that you can only know from being there, which sides of the street to be on. Some streets run the distance of a city. And so when somebody in Fort Worth tells me something like, oh, you wanna buy on Hewlin. Well, Hewlin in some areas is an incredible part of the city. In other areas, it's a bad part of the city. So I would pick a residential asset. I'd, I'd pick a neighborhood or two that I knew uh, really well to start concentrating on, and I would start there. And while I was doing that, I would go online and I would take uh, the real estate exam or the real estate courses to get my real estate license. This isn't a must, but I think it helps a ton. One, you for about a thousand bucks or less, you can get your real estate license, which is going to teach you a ton about real estate while you're getting your course. Two, you can do it online so you can fast track it pretty quickly. Um, I haven't done mine in, it's been over a decade, but I think when I did it, it took me two or three weeks to finish all the courses. And then I had to sign up for the final. I think maybe in total, it took me, you know, anywhere from a month to six weeks to get. But you learn everything about you know, real estate from a, a brokerage side, but not just from a brokerage side, you learn a lot of the fundamentals of real estate. But once you have your your license, you you have access to the MLS system, which gives you way greater uh, data and knowledge about the markets that your real estate license is active in. You can see which homes have sold, which are pending, which are under option, what are active. You can see listings that have been withdrawn, those that have expired. You can search back as far as, as you can to look at data then. What did something sell for previously? Why didn't something sell? You can see who the agents were. You know, again, in today's world, there, you, you know, with Zillow and things, a lot of that is public knowledge, but there is just a lot more in depth you can get by having a real estate license. 
and it just makes you smarter and more confident. So I would pick an asset, I would pick a market, I'd start getting my real estate license. I think one of the other things that most people are shocked by that have never borrowed from a bank is that they can actually get a loan. And so I would be doing a couple things. One, I would set up meetings with a lot of local banks in that market. And I would start asking what kind of loans you would qualify for, how much down payment you'd have to put down, what the interest rate might look like, are you going to have to guarantee it or not? Uh, What are the variables? If you put down less money than what, or if I put down more money than what? But then I would really try and focus on getting an FHA loan. An FHA loan is a government-backed loan. It allows people that don't have as great of credit to still get a loan. So whereas a lot of loans, you might need a 700 credit score and three years of proven income, FHA loosens the requirements a little bit and allows you to have a 580 credit score. It allows you to have a higher debt to income ratio. But if you're doing that, it must become your primary source of residence once you've purchased, which is fine in this play, because if you're buying a duplex, a triplex, a quadplex, or something with multiple units, there's a lot to be said about being able to buy it, uh, live in one of the units, and potentially rent out the rest. And the reason you would do this is because you can put down three and a half percent. So you don't need to have a lot of money to come to the table. And I'll get back to this in a little bit, why you might not have to put any down if you have your real estate license and you get an FHA loan. So to get kind of a good idea, again, of what you can borrow, which is huge in real estate, there's very few people that can always afford to pay all cash for everything. And it's not necessarily the smartest thing to do. I would be talking to local banks for getting ideas on conventional loans, and I would also be looking to get an FHA loan. Yes. When you say local banks, that doesn't mean like the Wells Fargo that's right by your house. You mean a local branded bank? Yes, that's a great question. And for uh, anybody listening, that is Johnny Peterson, world-renowned audio engineer who works on all of my episodes and has made the podcast what it is. And he's just going to join me today and ask questions. He's never done a real estate deal. And so I told him to chime in if he has anything that he'd like to talk about or or has a question about. So that's a great question. Yes, a local bank or regional bank is a bank that is kind of local to your area. So Wells Fargo, we would consider a big national bank. I would really steer clear of any national branded banks. They're much more difficult to deal with. They're harder to build relationships with. So I would go, and if you're in, you know, Fort Worth, you would look at something like Simmons Bank, or you might look at Interbank or Texas Bank and Trust or... Inwood Bank. But in in all of these markets, there are local banks and there are regional banks. And the reason why you want to talk to them is, one, they're hyper-focused in those markets. They know them as well as anybody. Two, it's a lot easier to build relationships with people at those banks. They're a lot more relationship-focused, especially for a smaller borrower than a big bank would be. If you go to a big bank I don't care what anybody says. You're just going to be another number um, on their list. It's going to be very hard to build a solid relationship. And so two reasons. Again, one, they know the market. And two, you can build a relationship with them. 
back to the markets, uh, the, the two tiny sub markets that I would I would pick one or two areas and I would get to know them as well as you can. And what I mean by getting to know them as well as you can is know, you know, the restaurants and the businesses that are there. I would drive up and down the streets and look for which properties are for sale, which are for lease. And I would take notes. I'd write down the broker's names and I would call them and find out what are they asking for those uh, properties? What are they leasing for? What are they selling for? I would go to the city's websites and look at what public planning has been done for those areas. A lot of these big cities have kind of master plans of how they look to develop over the next 10 years. You can also look at zoning cases in the area. You can look at new developments coming in the area. You can look at developments that might be being talked about but haven't been approved yet. You can just start getting a really big consensus. I would talk to people, talk to business owners. If you start finding a property or a street that you like, I would talk to people that are out walking their dog or residents on the street, ask them what they like about the neighborhood, ask them what they don't. A lot of the best information that you can get on about these submarkets aren't what you can find online. It's what you can find from really talking to people. And as you start to gather these details and you start to figure out where these submarkets are growing the most, what's been successful, what hasn't, what's coming, uh, what hasn't worked, why have people moved to these areas, where are new developments headed, how big are they going to be, how is that going to impact the density of the area, how is that going to impact the rental rates of the area. You really just start building a good story that as you're learning how to underwrite and figure out if a deal's good, it really plays into that narrative. And so all this can be done relatively for free. The only thing so far that you've spent any money on is getting a real estate license. On top of that, I would go to YouTube or I would ask a friend. There's plenty of people willing to share, but I went on YouTube earlier and I just searched how to underwrite a duplex or a small multifamily property. And there were thousands of videos that popped up. So I would YouTube things like how to underwrite a property. Underwriting is basically not only being able to use an Excel model and build kind of a financial analysis, but also what things you would look for in helping to understand and present a deal to potential investors. If you wanted to learn how to build an investor deck, if you if you were going to end up having to raise money for this, just go to Google and search, how do you make an investor deck? There are thousands of search results that come up that could help you along in this way. So again, we're still learning. Most of what I've talked about right now is totally free, and you can be doing this within weeks. Again, if I'm out searching for those markets, I'm in my car, I'm spending a few a few hours each day in those markets. If you do that for two, three, four, or five weeks at a time, you'll, you'll realize how quickly you'll become an expert. And back in the day when I bought my first property, which was in the TCU market, looking to rent something to students, I knew every house on every street. I knew which the best streets were. I knew which are the streets that people like to walk from and which, which areas you started getting outside of being able to walk to the university and people would have to drive to schools. I realized what would help make that decision if somebody was willing to pay more to be able to walk to class versus pay less and not have to walk to class. I learned why properties that were closer to school traded for more than those that didn't. 
I learned, you know, which were the most popular hot spots for students to socialize at, which were the best bars. All those things matter because, again, when you're trying to figure out, can I rent this? How much can I rent it for? What are people willing to pay? All those factors come into uh, that decision. And so mine was a student housing decision, but not every decision for your first deal has to be that. You just have to understand why is there demand in the market? How much is how much supply is in the market? And why would somebody be willing to pay the rent that I need to make this property successful? You'll learn about the demographics of the area. Uh, you'll learn about how much new developments come into the area. What's that doing to rents? If there's a lot of new product coming on, that might leave an opportunity to buy an older product and be able to rent it for cheaper. But it might also tell you that you're going to be able to raise your rents even in a cheaper property because the rents in the market overall are going up. It's just picking up on all these little things. After doing that, somebody should be able to kind of come into your market and ask you any question, and you should have a relatively good answer have thought through it or know exactly how to get that answer. And what you find is people that are experts in their submarket can tell you almost anything about what's going on in that area, not just related to the asset class they're buying, but to the ecosystem as a whole. What are the best streets? What have the most traffic on them? And, and so on and so on. So I think you get my point on the markets. One of the things I really like about you know, underwriting a duplex or a quadplex is the PL is relatively easy to understand. You have your your rents, which is your revenue. You have your expenses, which are your mortgage, your taxes, your insurance. Uh, it's maybe uh, leasing commissions that you have to pay, repairs and maintenance, uh, any reserves that you're going to have. But overall, it's relatively easy to understand, and it's easy to understand what your major risks are, your roof, maybe your air conditioning units, your foundation, which all can be um, you know, flushed out when you get a property condition report and you get an uh, appraisal and an inspection done, so you kind of know what you have going into it. But it's, it's relatively easy to underwrite. There's just not a whole lot of curveballs that can be thrown your way in underwriting something that simple. And so not only is it just a great asset class that there's always going to be demand for, but it's relatively easy to understand. And I would say just make it as simple as you can. Don't, don't overcomplicate things. Uh, overcomplicating things is where uh, you can get into trouble. And just kind of the golden rule, the longer you have to underwrite something and the more you have to play with the performa to get it to work, uh, the more it's telling you that your margin of safety and your room for error is probably shrinking. And so, you know, the best deals you should be able to do on a napkin. And what I mean by that is they should be relatively simple. The more complicated you have to make something to get it to work, that's usually a sign that it's not uh, probably the best deal to be doing in the first place. Okay, in a second, we're going to talk about raising money. But first, let's take a quick break to highlight this episode's sponsor, Juniper Square. If you aren't familiar with Juniper Square, it's an easy-to-use, all-in-one investment management software designed specifically for real estate owners. We have been using it at Fort Capital for several years now, and it has completely revamped the experience we are able to provide our investors through reporting, management, and efficiency. Here's a bit more on how Fort Capital utilizes the platform. 
you know, your, your, your tenants are your customers, but your real customers are your investors. And the real estate business, the lifeblood is the ability to have capital. It's an expensive game and being able to treat them, um, you know, like royalty. And when you have a lack of resources or you're smaller, it's very tough to be able to report in a way that, again, those high net worth individuals are expect are used to seeing. And so for years, we had either tried building stuff from scratch. It never worked. We would try hiring these companies that, that wanted to charge us a quarter million dollars a year for investor reporting. And it just never worked. And when we found Juniper, um, it aligned with our mission to provide our investors not only great returns, but a great experience in achieving those returns, which goes back to transparency, communication, their ability to know where their money is. You can check out episode 37 to listen to my full conversation with Brandon or visit cjunipersquare.com for more information. That's S-E-E junipersquare.com. And now back to the show. I would learn, as I said, to put together an investor deck. Getting an FHA loan, which we'll get into in a little bit, is super helpful. But if you're not going to get an FHA loan and it's not something you're going to make your primary residence and you're going to go for a conventional loan, chances are you might have to raise a little bit of money. So learning how to write this investor deck is really important. And what you'll find is that I think most people, when they go to raise money for the first time, are nervous, thinking that they might not be able to do it. And what I would tell you is the more prepared you are, uh, the more sophisticated and knowledgeable you are about the asset and about the investment that you're looking to make, the easier that it'll be to raise capital. There's a lot of capital in the world and there's not a lot of deals in the world. There's more capital out there than there is deals. And candidly, for if you're doing a deal of this size, chances are the investor that you pick is somebody that you probably know. Uh, they're going to be betting as much on you as they are on the investment. They're going to want to know your skin in the game. But learning all these things along the way are huge. And being able to raise those first dollars builds a, a ton of confidence. And it can be done when you've put in the work to really understand wh where you're putting your money and convincing investors that you're taking as big of a, a bet on this opportunity as they are. And so when you're writing that deck, and I won't go through the whole thing, if you want to know more about how to underwrite and create investment memos that your potential investors will love, you can go to fortcapitallp.com, go to How We Think, and there is a blog post on how to underwrite an industrial deal and create investment memos LPs love. We also made this a podcast episode, which you can listen to as well, number 81. So I won't go into all the details today, but if you go to either of those, um, especially if you go to our website, there's a few things that you can download from our website that'll help you better underwrite a deal and create a better investment memo. I'd start talking to friends, family, or anyone who would listen about making an investment with me. So I would start telling people along the way, you know, I'm getting my license. I really want to get my first deal done. Um, you, you can expect to be seeing, you know, something from me soon. These are the areas that I'm targeting. This is the type of deal I'm looking to do. And just start getting the word out that this is something that you're working on. I'm a firm believer that uh, the more you put out and the more attention you put out towards something, the more attention that you'll get back. Um, and so it's important to be letting everybody along the way know what you're up to and what's important. Johnny? This 
money that you're going to be raising, is this going to be put towards that three and a half percent down payment that you'd get in combination with the FHA loan? Good question. It could be. But if you're going to go the FHA route with only three and a half percent, it's going to be very minimal amount of money that you're looking to raise. And so, yes, that could be the case, but it's more likely that you're going to be raising this money if you don't go the FHA route and you get a conventional loan where you're maybe having to put 10 or 20 percent down. Again, the title of this episode is that you don't have a whole lot of capital to start out with and you don't have a whole lot of experience. So I'm I'm just not assuming that you already have kind of the 20% down payment needed. And even if you do, you might not want to put all of that into one deal. That's where raising other people's money can help you out. So yes, it could be used for either. Um, I would still present the deal the same way, depending on the loan you got. But more likely you're going to be raising money if you're getting a conventional loan than an FHA loan. If you are going to raise from investors, and you'll learn this in learning how to underwrite or present a deal, you don't need to have the most favorable terms to yourself. I would make them very um, market. I'd make them very favorable to any investor that's willing to take a chance on you. Again, this is your first deal. There's plenty of opportunity down the road if this is something you continue doing to maybe get a more favorable deal to the GP. But my first five or 10 deals were about as LP friendly as you could ever get. That's not sustainable long term if you're looking to do this full time, but it's certainly the right thing to do if you're if you're getting your business off the ground and you're starting to try and get deals one, two, three, four, five off the ground. So if you do all this in 90 days, I think you'd be more of a market expert than you could imagine. You'd have conviction and confidence. You'd have seen so many properties. You would have run so many performas. You would have gotten your real estate license. You would have talked to so many people in the market, so many brokers in the market, that you'd really be able to start building a gut for what a good deal looks like. Once you, once you know what a good deal looks like, that's when it really starts to get fun. And knowing what a good deal looks like when you really get you know, to the, the top of your game And even I think in 90 days you can get there is when you can look at something and in under, you know, an hour be able to tell, is this good or not? Should I be wasting my time on this or shouldn't I? And just because one deal doesn't work out then doesn't mean, you know, all that time is wasted. Knowing what doesn't work is as important as knowing what does work. If you see enough things that don't work, it makes the things that do work seem more obvious. And so it's a great use of time to just be underwriting everything you can. Even if you kind of know it's a bad deal, underwrite it all the way through, realize why it's not, kind of put that in your mental bank. And as you, again, as you underwrite the next deal, you'll just start getting that feel that, okay, this is, I'm starting to keen in on a deal that's going to work, but you got to have repetitions. So in that 90 days, you're getting your license, you're becoming religious about a market, you're learning how to underwrite and you're looking at putting several deals through your performas and through your underwriting practices. You're talking to banks along the way to know what they would and won't, wouldn't accept. You're really starting to kind of build knowledge. And I'm telling you, the more effort you put in, just like in all things, you can become an expert in a market relatively quickly. Will you become the best in 90 days? No but you'll become an expert enough to know how to make a deal. And every day thereafter that, you'll keep getting better. So once that kind of groundwork has been laid and now you're starting to build a gut, 
I'd start cold calling every property that met my criteria and follow up with a letter offering to purchase. I'd tell every broker I knew that what I was looking for and any good broker or human will be eager to help someone looking to do their first deal. I would always recommend that no matter what a broker tells you, you should still do your own underwriting. Again, brokers are fantastic, but they might present uh, one set of facts, and your job is to confirm those facts, see if they meet your criteria. I would recommend using your own numbers and not just what's given to you. What you might find is that what was given to you was accurate, but I would still always make sure that you're depending on your set of facts and your numbers, not just on somebody else's. When you put in the extra work and you get your real estate license, and if you're not represented by a buying agent and you are cold calling and you find a seller, one thing that I did early on was I would put in my offer and I would represent myself as the agent or the broker, and I would get a 3% commission at closing, which, which can be used as your down payment when you go look to buy something or it can be used for reserves. But you don't have to do it this way, but if you're able to represent yourself, that's 3% at closing that you're gonna get back. And on a deal, if you get an FHA loan where you're only putting 3.5% down, you might be getting most of your down payment through that commission. So just something to be thinking about. Another thing I would be doing along the way, which is simple to do, I'm assuming you're, you're, the property you're gonna buy, it's gonna need some work. Uh, maybe you're going to have to update some things. Maybe you might have to add a bathroom or convert a garage into a bedroom. Or even if you're not doing any major projects like that, after you buy, you're going to have maintenance issues. You're going to need a contractor. And so I would be talking to people in the market about who are great subcontractors that I could be using. If you're driving by projects that are under development or redevelopment or having you know little projects going on, you might pull over and just go meet the, the contractor on site and gather a number. Uh, one hack is to go to Lowe's or Home Depot or Ace Hardware, somewhere like that early in the morning. Most crews show up really early to get all their supplies before they head off to their jobs. You can meet a lot of contractors that way. But it's really good to get not only get to know a contractor that'll deliver on a good price and that is honest, but also to be with somebody that's been in that area, that's done multiple projects, that has a track record. Because I think one of the biggest mistakes people make on their first is, you know, they meet a contractor, they, uh, they you know, they think that the price is going to be one thing, come to find out they go way over budget. And ultimately, it, it, it comes down to knowing the right questions to ask the contractor, finding someone with a track record that you can trust. And that can happen a ton of different ways. I mean, it doesn't have to be just meeting them in person. That could be a referral from a friend or somebody you trust. You could go online and search Angie's List or Craigslist and, you know, meet people that way. But I would do my best to try and find someone that has a track record and someone that you can trust uh, because having great contractors, especially, well, it's always important, but it's very important on your first deal. That's where a lot of mistakes can be made. Things can go over budget. And often if a contractor that's not trustworthy kind of sees somebody doing a deal for their first time, that's where you can get overcharged or be taken advantage of. And so it's a very important thing to do. Again, it's free. It just takes the time and the work, but I would be getting to know contractors. 
okay, so now you've you've become a market expert. You're starting to learn how to underwrite. You've built a good gut. And now you get a property under contract. I'd update my investor deck and I'd start calling all the investors that I had talked to about potentially investing with me. Again, maybe you're going to need an investor. Maybe you won't, but it's still a good process to go through. And on top of that, I would be sending that deck to banks so that they can start looking at the deal that you're wanting uh, because you're probably going to have 30 to 60 days to close it. So as soon as you get something under contract, you need to start talking to equity and banks. And even before you get something under contract, you've already started talking to banks. You've already started talking to investors. If you're starting to figure out that you're leading into your first deal, that you're about to get something under contract, it's never too early to start talking to people. Again, it being your first deal, it could take longer than normal uh, to raise that, that first amount of money. So the quicker you can start talking to people, the better. The good news is with a deal of this size, depending on what market you're in, you're not looking to raise millions of dollars. You're looking to raise maybe anywhere from 50 to a couple hundred thousand dollars max. That's a manageable size. That might come from one person. That might come from a couple people. But you're not out swinging for the fences on your first trying to raise a ton of money. If you are buying something in a market that you uh, are already living in and can drive to relatively quickly, and you're doing just a few units on your first one, I highly recommend managing it yourself. Again, there's so much content online about how to manage a property, how to set it up efficiently. You're already going to have a contractor that can do routine maintenance for you. Maybe you're a handy person and can do some of it yourself. I was not. But I would highly recommend managing the property yourself if you can. It's going to teach you a lot. It's going to teach you about the little nuances of what can go wrong. It's going to teach you about rent collection. It's going to teach you about uh, cost savings and trying to do things uh, to fix, you know, repairs and do CapEx work at reasonable costs. It's going to teach you the things that, that can go wrong. It's, it's one way to do it. If you don't feel like you have the time or the energy, then I would do the same thing that I did with contractors or banks. I would call three or four local property managers start meeting them, building relationships with them, and figuring out their cost, using that cost in your underwriting model, um, and starting to build that relationship. A great property manager is going to add a ton of value to you. A bad property manager can destroy a lot of value. And so it is as important to know, A, are you going to manage it yourself? Which again, I recommend. It's a great learning experience. But if you're not, finding a, a great manager that's going to provide value to you and not take value from you. Johnny? Would you say that being able to manage a property yourself really well is going to benefit you more in the long run in terms of being able to raise capital for future deals versus outsourcing it? That's a great question. I Yes. I mean, I think if I took a different model like a Chick-fil-A, you can't own a Chick-fil-A unless you've worked in a Chick-fil-A for a minimum of two years. And you usually start out as a cook, and then you might move up to some type of manager ma managerial level, then you might become a GM, then you're qualified to uh, apply to actually own a franchise. I think the same can be said for lots of industries, but especially in real estate. Knowing those little tiny nuances and details of managing a property, that scales with you no matter how large you decide to get or how many properties you decide to have. So I think for me, I, I realized I sucked at managing, but I still learned so many things 
along the way that even as I sit here 16 years later, still ring true on that first uh, that first single family house I bought that's still relevant today with the larger portfolio we have. So I don't think it's critical. It's not going to make or break you. But just like all things, the more details and in the weeds you learn early long, early on, I think the better uh, outcomes you'll have as you grow. Um, and even though you could have a third party manager, which again could be great, if you go that route, even taking the time to ask that manager questions and kind of learn as much as you can, even being a little bit removed from management is helpful. All right. So back to the FHA. If you can get an FHA loan, which you should be able to, and you're able to use your license on the buy and you're able to get that 3% commission and you're willing to move into the unit uh, and make it a pr- uh, one of the units and make it a primary residence, you virtually found a way to do a deal with zero money down. And this is the first, this is the exact way I did my first deal. I used an FHA loan. I used my license to get a commission and I was obsessive about learning for that first 90 days. And that ended up putting me on a single family house, 3511 Corto in Fort Worth. Uh, it was a three bedroom, one bath. I bought it. I leased one of the rooms to myself. We converted the garage to another bedroom bathroom, turned it into a four two. And I ended up leasing, uh, living basically virtually for free. Uh, my tenants paid the rest of my mortgage and my operating expenses, and that was kind of the start. So that is how a 17-year-old college student with no experience and no money was able to buy his first property. And for me, that was the first building block to a long career in real estate. You don't have to do it full-time. Uh, this could be a way to start earning passive income, and maybe your goal is to you know buy one or two deals a year and continuously keep building, or maybe it's your foray into doing this full-time. But I think in everything I said today, there's a quote that Abe Lincoln once said, if you give me six hours to chop down a tree, I will spend the first four sharpening the ax, is knowing that you want to do it is one thing, but putting in the preparation and the work for those first 90 to call it 180 days of just being ruthless about learning You'll be, one, shocked about how much you'll learn, and two, you'll be shocked that there is capital for you if you become an expert in that market. And you're not taking off such a big bite that you can't recover from. This is something very manageable in Texas, duplexes to quadplexes you know, are relatively affordable. You could buy something as cheap as $100,000, maybe as expensive as half a million, maybe a little bit more. Obviously, there's other markets where it can become pricier, but it's relative to those markets. But the same things you'll learn in, you know, something residential, there's a lot of lessons that transfer over to commercial. There's also lots of lessons that transfer if you go from four units to buying something that's maybe 20 units or 100 units. You're learning lessons all along the way that are transferable no matter the size and can really set a great foundation. So that's how I did my first deal. I spent a lot of time learning. And once I learned, I realized that the time that I actually had to spend finding the deal was 
as I put back to Abe Lincoln's quote, kind of the last two hours of getting ready to chop down that tree, the, the work I did in those first four hours, you know, made all the difference. And there's still lessons I know 16 years later that help us understand a market, whether it's something that we can drive to or something in a whole different city. Um, there's probably several other ways for you to execute your first deal. This is just one of those ways. I'm sure I left out some detail and nuance. If after listening to this, you have any questions, shoot us a DM or an email and would be happy to answer them. So thank you for enjoying me on this snow day. And I hope this leads to you getting your first deal. Hey everyone, it's Chris here again. Thank you so much for joining me on this journey. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, leave a five-star rating or write a quick review. Thanks again, and I'll see you on the next episode. Chris Powers is the founder and CEO of Fort Capital LP. All opinions from Chris and guests of the Fort Podcast are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Fort Capital LP. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for real estate or investment decisions. The Fort with Chris Powers is produced by Straight Up Podcasts.